It's Wednesday, June 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The search continues for unaccounted people at the Champlain Towers South Condo in Florida, as we hear of more red flags that were raised about the building going back to 2018 and even just two days before it collapsed. An engineering consultant indicated in a 2018 report that concrete damage would multiply exponentially over the years, despite residents being told that the building was in good shape. Alicia Fieldstadt, reporter at NBC News, joins us for some of the building warning signs. Next, car dealers are selling more vehicles above the sticker price as demand continues to remain high while supply is low. Dealers are loading cars up with extra additions and in some cases charging $10,000 over MSRP. Nora Naughton, auto industry reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why dealers are selling cars for so much. The short answer is because they can. Finally, the Arizona ballot audit could be backfiring on Republicans as polls continue to show that about half of voters oppose it, with independent voters opposing it by 18 points. The counting is done for now, but next comes the report, which is expected to be partisan. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for why there's opposition to the audit. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For those still trapped, we hold out hope for the search to discover survivors. For all those who lost loved ones, we send our deepest condolences and pledge support and solidarity. Joining us now is Alicia Fieldstadt, breaking news reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this ongoing story with the Champlain Towers South in Florida. Obviously, this condo collapsed. We've been hearing about it. A lot of us have seen the video. Some pretty crazy stuff there. And currently, as it stands, we have 11 deaths and 150 people still unaccounted for. Those numbers can change. But right now, the attention is turning to why this is happening while the ongoing rescue efforts are still happening. But we're starting to get a better picture of just kind of how bad that building was, the condition of that building. We have a letter sent in April to residents talking about how the lower levels of the building needed some work. Things could be exponentially worse. And I guess residents were told at the time, hey, everything's fine. The building's in good condition. So, Alicia, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning of the condition of the building. So just to be clear, officials haven't said yet the actual cause of the collapse. They say that will take a very long time to get to the bottom of this. They're focusing right now still on search and rescue after this collapse on Thursday. But we are getting some insight into a process that that started in 2018, in which an inspector went to the building and he started seeing some erosion under the pool, raised alarms to that effect. And then at a meeting in which the residents were updated following that inspection, they were told everything is fine. The building looks fine. A year later, a board member raised concerns about construction that was happening very close to this building. Quick email shot off like any of us would do. Hey, I'm worried about this construction. And she emailed a town um, building supervisor. And it was the same man who had said, same thing. Don't worry about it. I don't even need to come by to check. Let it leave your mind. In 2021, when someone else came by to simply check the pool of the building was when the extreme erosion, they, they started 
finding so much more. And the 2018 warning had come to fruition. And that's when the the building president sent a letter to the residents telling them that it was going to be a, a pretty penny to fix all of these concerns. And just to be clear, this is a condo building. So the people in the building essentially own the building. So if, if there need to be repairs, then they all need to chip in. And between 2018 and 2019, that number rose by $6 million from $9 million to $15 million. And the, the language in this letter is, you know, months before half of it collapsed is just the alarm bells. You know, you mentioned that, you know, there was a pool inspector there checking out uh, some stuff. That was two days before the building collapsed. He even took pictures of cracked concrete, exposed rebar, and he wasn't there to do anything for the building. He was just doing pool inspection stuff. But he, even he noticed standing water in some of the uh, par- in the parking garage. All of this stuff was alluded to in that report from 2018 that you were mentioning. And then again, in the letter that the president sent just in April, and that pool inspector, he said there was standing water all over the parking garage. He said there was a puddle of water and specifically located in a part where the contractor in 2018 had reported there was major structural damage. So there were warning signs here. This wasn't something that came out of nowhere. We had three years of warning signs. And again, we still don't know exactly what had caused this building to partially collapse, but it's definitely coming into clearer view. And that pool area, we have Another uh, colleague of mine spoke to a woman yesterday or a man yesterday whose wife had called him during the collapse. And she said the pool was just swallowed and then the line disconnected. This was shortly before the building flattened. The other thing is uh, there's a nearly identical building, Champlain Towers North, which is about a block away. I think it was built a year later from the South Condo, which is the one that collapsed. Residents, uh, I think they're doing some audits there and looking into the structural integrity there. Uh, A lot of the residents there aren't leaving. They say that that building is better maintained. But, you know, this is just causing for a lot of building inspections in the area. Anything above, I think, six stories, uh, 40 years old or more, you know, they're really starting to turn a closer eye to these things. Yeah, the mayor has ordered that for all of these buildings. And again, they're all told to go through this 40-year audit, but she's just making sure that that is happening. And anything that that is near that 40 years, they're on the ground right now looking at those. And same with that sister building. They've already done a quick audit on it and they're going back and they're going to do a more in-depth one. But residents have said that most of them are sticking around. Only about 25% have left, according to their accounts. Alicia Fieldstat, Breaking news reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, dealers are sort of taking two different approaches to that. One is what I wrote about this week, which is just raising the price. And depending on what state you're in, you can do what's called a market value adjustment, which is I'm raising the price just because I can. (laughs) Joining us now is Nora Naughton, auto industry reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nora. Thanks for having me. Much like the housing market, the car business right now is uh, booming and it's a seller's market. 
we're seeing cars go for above sticker price, above the MSRP, the manufacturer suggested retail price, as dealerships are adding on different additives, uh, new wheels, you know, other things that drive that sticker price up. And uh, it's it's tough for people out there to uh, meet the rising costs of this. So, Nora, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing in the car business right now. At its core, uh, you sort of nailed it with the comparison to the housing market. It's a very simple supply-demand equation at the end of the day. There are no cars. <laughs> so if you want one, you're going to have to pay pretty dearly for it. And, you know, dealers are sort of taking two different approaches to that. One is what I wrote about this week, which is, just raising the price. And depending on what state you're in, you can do what's called a market value adjustment, which is I'm raising the price just because I can. <laughs> um, yeah. And in others, you know, they, they do those add-ons, like you said. And then, you know, there are dealers who say, okay, sure. Like we have a reason to make people pay more right now, but what does that do for us in terms of our relationship with customers in the long run. Yeah. And that's an important one. You actually spoke to a few people who were out there buying cars and, you know, I, I wrote some notes in my, in my article on the article here. And I said, man, that sounded like a jerk salesman because they're telling <laughs> these people, Hey, uh, you know, we're charging you $10,000 over MSRP. And they're saying, well, why, what's going on? They're like, well, because we can, if you're trying to sell somebody a car, that's not the tactic I would use, but that's the point right there is that, you know, they can right now they're, looking at their inventory, they don't know when the next shipment of cars will come in. So they're trying to make mm -hmm. more off of every unit that they have. That's exactly right. And, you know, the unique thing about car shopping is that you can haggle. You know, you know exactly what the factory suggested price is, which is not a luxury you have when you go to the grocery store or to shop for clothes or anything like that. But what you're usually haggling over is the guy down the street has the same car for $2,000 less. Well, if you're a GM dealer and you have the only Escalade in a 600 mile radius, what is there to haggle over? Right. Yeah. And that's a tough spot right there. One of the things that you did mention though, because you know, you go to the dealership, you see that sticker price, you see kind of what's included. Boom. That's the price. There are States uh, such as California, and Connecticut, which require the dealers to disclose why they're charging you above that factory price if that if that's where the number gets uh, going. These are called sticker addendums. Tell me a little bit about that. So these are exactly what they sound like. They're little add-ons to the window sticker that will have usually the dealer's name on it. It looks very much like the actual window sticker itself. You kind of have to look for it to see it. And it'll just, it'll have the same sort of itemized thing that every window sticker has, you know, all of the features or whatever, but these are from the dealer and not from the factory. And you'll see that's our suggested price. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about uh, some of the people that you spoke to when it does come to that relationship with the customer, because, you know, if you're charging them over the sticker price and let's say you do make a sale, you know, some of these dealers are saying, well, in the long run, that might hurt us because they might never come back to buy a car from us because they feel like they got taken advantage of already. In the case of the two consumers that are in my story, they did not buy from those dealers <laughs> that tried to charge them over sticker. They took their business elsewhere. So I don't know what kind of luck those dealers had with other customers, but they certainly lost those people. Right. And in the case of the, the woman who bought the Escalade, you know, she said she actually was a pretty loyal customer to that particular GM dealership, and they've lost her for life. 
so uh, you know we've talked about this before the used car market is also in the same way where they're just going for way above what they're worth currently mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is maybe the bright spot if you're looking for a new car right now. It's going to be more expensive, but you probably have a little bit money in your pocket than you think you do because whatever you're going to trade in is worth more than you think it is, believe me. And that might be where you end up doing your negotiating is how much you get for that trade in as opposed to how much you're going to pay for the car, for the new car, because at this point, most dealers really aren't budging. Nora Naughton, auto industry reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Election experts, Democratic officials, and Republican members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors oppose the recount. And they point out that the voting machines had already been checked by an accredited firm and that the election results were validated by a previous audit. That is, the results are correct. Now, do you support or oppose the audit? Then opposition starts to increase. Joining us now is Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this Arizona audit that's ongoing right now. They're doing an audit of the votes in Maricopa County. It's been going on for some time. I think the vote, uh, the actual counting has ended, but they still have to generate the report from all of that. But we just saw some new polling out of this with a lot of opposition to it, actually, especially and including on the Republican side of things. So, Mark, tell us what we're seeing about reaction to this audit. Well, people who know the state, Republicans who know the state and want to win statewide elections are generally opposed to the audit because they believe that A, Joe Biden won the election fair and square and B, dwelling on this by having these kind of wily coyote acme audits aren't necessarily very effective at persuading voters to vote Republican. The poll that was done in Arizona of 600 Arizona likely voters by Ben Dixon and Amandi International showed that just at first blush, when you just use the most neutral terms, and incidentally, using the neutral terms is kind of misleading by just calling it an audit because it kind of isn't. Just asking people, hey, there's an audit in Maricopa County based on what you know about the audit of the presidential ballots. Do you support or oppose the recount? of 46% supported, 49% are against it. But when you start to dig into it, the anti-audit intensity is five points stronger than the pro-audit intensity. That's people who are strongly opposed are at 42%. People who are uh, somewhat, or better said, strongly support are at 37%. Also, when you dig into the cross tabs of the poll, you look at the party breaks, you'll see Republicans and Democrats are kind of equally divided on it. That is, Republicans support it by as much as Democrats oppose it and vice versa. But independent voters oppose it by double digits, almost 20 points. Now, when you actually ask voters a question that accurately reflects the nature of the quote unquote audit, it's a a full recount of all these hand ballots, but it was initiated by Senate Republicans. It's conducted by a firm with no experience in conducting election audits. The company's CEO also believes that widespread fraud marred the 2020 elections. Election experts, Democratic officials, and Republican members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors oppose the recount, and they point out that the voting machines had already been checked by an accredited firm and that the election results were validated by a previous audit. That is, the results are correct. Now, do you support or oppose the audit? Then opposition starts to increase. Only 44% support, 51% are opposed. And again, the intensity factor is there. 34% strongly support it, 44% strongly opposed it. That's a 10-point margin. Well, then the question is, what? 
what effect does this actually have for candidates? Well, by a nine-point margin, Arizona voters are less likely to support a candidate who supports the audit. So you couple those things together. The audit is just not popular, both when you talk to people who kind of know the elections business, Republicans, and when you look at the polling. And as further evidence of that is Joe Biden. Joe Biden, his favorability ratings are in barely positive territory. 49% have a favorable opinion of him, and 48% have an unfavorable opinion of him. But asked if he deserves to be elected to a second term, then you see actually rather strong opposition to Joe Biden, of all things. When asked, like, do you think that he deserves to be elected for another four-year term if he decides to run again in 2024? Well, 53% of Arizona voters are against that. Only 37% are in favor. But then if you match him up against Trump, he beats Trump by a seven-point margin. We're expecting this report to be very partisan. We know the person that's leading the report is already kind of on record, you know, on the Trump side of things, saying that uh, the election was stolen. There's all sorts of fraud there. What are we going to expect once that report comes out? Uh, You know, it's going to it seems like we already know what it's going to say. But how well is it going to be received as so many people are opposing it outright already? The Republicans that we've spoken to, as well as the Democrats, think, look, this opinion's baked in. The strong opposition versus strong support numbers in this poll also indicate that. So at this point, the genie's out of the bottle. They're going to finish it. But maybe a better metaphor, I think it's from the playwright George Bernard Shaw, the hanging is over and all that remains is the trial, right? So we know what the verdict is going to be. Right. We're just kind of, we're kind of waiting on it. But to answer your question, no, I, I don't think, at least when you look at the polling and you talk to people who know what they're talking about, when you just look at the facts of the case, it's hard to see this having any concrete effect. Now, the outstanding question is this. Will politicians in other states, especially other swing states, want to take this up and use this kind of Arizona model and graft it into their state? And as the polling numbers in Arizona indicate, the Republican Party has a bit of a Trump problem. They can't quit him because the reality is he animates their base. And the people who love Donald Trump really love Donald Trump, and they vote Republican. But the people who hate Donald Trump really hate Donald Trump. They vote Democrat, and there's more of them. There's more of them right now in Arizona. And so the more the party goes along this path, absent anything else, and that's an important caveat, absent anything else, the more troublesome it can be for the party, the GOP, to prevail. Now, that having been said, there are headwinds for Joe Biden, uh, both in Arizona and nationwide. The reality is, He's going to be facing his first midterm, and except for George W. Bush and his first midterm after 9-11, presidents watch their party get decimated in Congress. And then there's also redistricting, and a lot of the states that Trump won are going to be getting new congressional districts. That also could change the balance of power in Washington. So I don't want anyone to walk away with the impression where he's saying, you know, the GOP is dead. My gosh, it isn't. But the reality is, is when you look at the poll, when you talk to people who understand the business, and kind of the political winds and how they're blowing. Donald Trump is not doing his party the favors uh, that many in his party want him to do. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.